John chapter 14, back to where we were before the end of the year and all. John 14, verses 18 through 24. The challenge for singing a song like that, and the challenge for believing a text that we will look at this morning, the challenge is what if you're Joseph and you're in prison, but you didn't do anything wrong? Right? How do you sing, great is thy faithfulness, when you're in prison and you did no wrong? And then you have the cupbearer who's supposed to speak a word in your defense, and he forgets, and you get stuck there for two more years. How do you sing, great is thy faithfulness? Or if you're like the Apostle John, and you're exiled on the Isle of Patmos, all alone, without anyone there to comfort you and sustain you, how do you sing, great is thy faithfulness? Or if you're like the Apostle Peter, and you're crucified on a tree, as church history would tell us upside down, How do you sing, great is thy faithfulness? Or if you're like the Apostle Paul, just outside of Rome, who has his head cut off and rolls down a hill. How do you sing, great is thy faithfulness? How do we come to the position that we believe that Jesus has not left us as orphans when we feel alone and deserted? That's the challenge of our text. John 14, verse 18. You have a direct statement by the Lord Jesus a promise, if you will, I will not leave you as orphans. Or you could translate, I will not leave you orphaned. I will come to you yet a little while, and the world will see me no more. But you will see me, because I live, you also will live. In that day, You will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has, whoever possesses my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him, Judas Now, not Iscariot, he's gone, he's already left the place, said to him, Lord, what has happened, or how is it that you will, what has happened that you're going to manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, which by the way doesn't seem to answer the question, look, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. (laughs) Do you believe this? We will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Just for clarity's sake, there is a difference between the world and those who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I know enough to know that Arminian theology and free will type teaching will take a word like cosmos, which is the Greek word for world, and they will say that it includes every person on the face of the earth, and they will quote John 3.16, for God so loved the world. Understand that and understand what they're saying, but also understand the text here that we have before us and what Jesus is saying. And so I just want you to see that it's Jesus himself who makes a distinction between the world and between disciples. It's a distinction between world and disciples. They're not the same group. They're not the same entity. You say, how so? 
Well, remember, he says in verse 16 that the world cannot receive the Spirit of God. And then we have in verse 19, it says this, that the world cannot see Jesus. And then if you look over in verse 21, you'll find that the world will not have Jesus manifested to them. The world can't receive the Spirit, the world can't see Jesus, and the world doesn't have Jesus manifest to them. But the contrast to all of those statements are, but you do. You do receive the Spirit, you do see Christ, and He will be manifested to you more and more as time goes on. I only say that to you, just where you understand that here in my text, Jesus does make a distinction between the world and believers. Now, understand there can be a general love that God loves the world, but that love is not the same as the love that is reserved for believers. I want you to understand that. I don't don't think this is an argumentative point. I think it's a point to be rejoiced in. The point is this, that the love that Christ has for his children is far superior and specific than the love he has in general for the world. I want you to know as a believer that you are loved by Christ. And he has set his affection upon you and that you're not alone, no matter what you're going through or what your emotional state is or the level of your suffering. I want you to understand that you have not been orphaned. You've not been orphaned. You say, well, I don't feel his presence. You may not feel it, but your feelings do not negate reality. I don't feel like this. Yeah, but this is what he said. But this is what he said. You have to preach that to yourself. You you say things like this during the week. I'm scared. I'm afraid. I'm depressed. I have anxiety. No one loves me. No one cares. All these things are going on. Turmoil in the world. Politics. All this turmoil. It's a cacophony of voices everywhere. And you get the point. It's like, I just want to quit. I can't take anymore. Nobody cares. You're wrong and you're lying. Somebody does care. And his name is Jesus, and he says, I will not leave you orphaned. We have to believe that or not believe it. It's only options. So let's look at the text this morning as we work through this. I pray, not, not, not what I say or the pastor, but I pray you believe the text of Scripture. Find your assurance. Look with your eyes, with your heart of faith at the words of God in the Scripture. Verse 18, I don't know how it can be any more reassuring. I will not leave you orphaned. And actually the next verb is present. I come, not future, I will come, but I come. I'm I'm in the present state of coming right now. I'm always right there. I will not leave you orphaned. Two promises in this verse. The first one in the negative, I will not leave you as orphans. Think about this. This is the Greek word. This this word has several different ways it's translated and applied. Interesting to me because it's the word for, that's used for divorce. I will not divorce you. I will not cut you off. I will not separate myself from you and break covenant with you. 
That's the same word as you, you would see in the Gospels where uh, Joseph uh, uh, was going to divorce his wife Mary. That's, it's the same word that's used in all the divorce passages. But another interesting flavor to this word is, I will not leave you, not leave without concerning oneself any further about it. In other words, I'm not going to leave you over here and go over here and never concern myself with you again. I'm not going to turn my back on you. I'm not walking out on you. I'm not giving up on you. I'm not throwing you out and saying, I don't care about you anymore. That is a direct promise from Jesus to believers. It's not going to happen. I'll give you a context in the Gospel of John. If you've ever read John chapter 4, and you, you get caught up in that story, and you'll remember, here's this Samaritan woman, and what did she go to the well for? Well, she took this pot, right? What's she going to do with this thing? She's going to get water in it, right? That's the whole purpose. She goes there. Well, you know the text. She leaves. And you're like, she didn't even take her pot, right? She forgot about it. Jesus says, I'm not doing that to you. I'll never walk away from you and leave you sitting there and never give thought of you again. What a promise. I will not leave you orphaned. This word orphaned pertaining to being without aid, without comfort. There's one who serves as an associate, a friend. I'm I'm not going to leave you as one that no one cares about. Now, it's not the same, but it is the context of the world that I grew up in. My dad's a construction worker. He's an iron worker. He's a hardworking man, tough as nails. And, uh, but the context of my home was what? We go to church on Sunday morning, and we go home and we eat lunch. And after we eat lunch, my dad gets in the truck and he leaves. I won't see my, get my dad again until Friday, Friday after I get out of school on Friday. So my dad have to drive a long ways to his job, wherever that job would be. And he'd be gone all week long, and he would just leave me. But I never in my entire childhood felt orphaned. And my dad left every week. But I knew that as soon as he got off work, dad was coming home. I knew he would come. Always knew he would come. Every week he would come. He did that his whole life. He drove, I don't know, thousands of miles in order that he could be home with his family on the weekend. He's there on Friday night, all day Saturday, Sunday Go to church, go back to work. That's the way it was. If my dad was big enough and strong enough to be like that towards me, his son, I just want you to know Christ is better than my dad. If for a chance I think that he's missing for a moment in my life that Jesus doesn't care, I've got this assurance he will come. Jesus is coming. He, at, your, at, at the point that you need him the most, he's there. He's never going to abandon you. He's never going to forget you. Somebody in this room needs to get a hold of this. Stop living in depression. Stop living in anxiety like nobody loves you. That is worldly junk philosophy. The king of glory has set his affection upon you and he loves you. You say, Pastor, you don't understand my situation. I have this, 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 and this. You don't have nothing like Peter did, and you have not yet resisted unto blood, and I know that Christ loved them, and he loves you. Don't ever forget that. Preach the text yourself. Nobody cares. I will not leave you orphan. Nobody ever visits me. I come to you. Preach that to yourself. That's what Jesus says to you, to every believer. When will he come in the context of our verse, verse 18? I will come, or I come to you. It is a puzzling question a little bit, but I think we could solve it. 
as he's talking to these disciples, certainly it can be a specific reference to the post-resurrection appearance. Tomorrow, their Savior is going to be slaughtered on a tree. He's going to die. His spirit is going to be gone. He's going to bow his head and be no more. He's going to say, to Telestai, it is finished. I am done. And they're going to see their Savior dead on a tree. They're going to see Joseph of Arimathea and them take him down and put him in a tomb and put a stone in front and seal this thing. And his body's going to be put in a grave. And it's like, at that moment, what's going to happen? He's gone. He's left us. I wonder that night, Friday night, when he's dead and in the tomb, if one of those disciples is laying there sleeping going, but he said he wouldn't leave me. He said he would come. And they're challenged Saturday morning whether or not they're going to believe the direct words of Jesus or not. How how am I supposed to take these things? And This post-resurrection thought, then all of a sudden, here comes Jesus and he appears in the upper room. He said he would come. Why are you shocked? I told you I would come. I told you I wouldn't leave you. And so this post-resurrection appearance. Um, David, you're going to have to let those people in out there. I'm sorry. Well, I'm not sorry, but they really want in. It can be that, and I I certainly have no opposition to the post-resurrection appearance as how he came to these disciples, because he certainly did. But also it can be the post-indwelling of the Spirit of God. When the Spirit of God is poured out on Pentecost, the Spirit of God comes to dwell within the believer. And we see that in the book of Acts. And I'm not opposed to that either. Because how is it that the Father and the Son takes up residence in a person? He does so by the third person of the Godhead, the Spirit of God. And so it can be a reference to that. It can also be... I will come as a foreshadowing of the parousia, the second coming of Christ. You remember in John 14 and verse 2, in my Father's house are many rooms. Remember, I'm going to go prepare a place for you. If it were not so, I wouldn't have told you. And then I'm going to come and I'm going to take you to myself. Post-resurrection, the pouring out of the Spirit, the second coming of Christ. All of these, I think, get wrapped up and included in this statement, I will come. I come to you. They see it immediately. Then after he has ascended into heaven, they see it by faith as the Spirit of God lives in them, and that's where we are. He's come to us in the form of the Spirit dwelling within us, being our helper and our comforter. But he's still coming again bodily in the second coming of Christ. And by faith, we look forward to that day with expectation, with hope, and with assurance. Where do we get that from? The indwelling of the Spirit of God causes us to hope in His return to gather us unto Himself. What a blessed thought in a world that is just driving me insane. I'll be honest, I mean, you have the same world to live in that I live in. My view of humanity has gotten to an all-time low in the church, out of the church, I mean, people, people lie to me all day, every day, it seems. I mean, say, there's so much inconsistency and so much depravity and so much worldliness and so much carnality. It's like I, you get beat down by all the stuff you have to put up with. You, you try to live for Christ, and it's like, I mean, this is difficult stuff. And so when I find a verse like this, I'm like, Lord Jesus, come. Come today. It's like the other day, it's, our society is so bad. I was like, you know what? I'm going to go out and ride my bicycle just so I can have peace of mind for just a moment. I made two miles on a blacktop road with no cars. I made one turn. A guy stops, rolls down his window, and cusses me out. I'm like, I can't even ride my bike two miles without being cussed out in this society. It's, 
And I was like, I need these kind of texts. I'm not orphaned. I'm not abandoned. I have one that has come, and he resides in me. You have that same truth for you. You're not alone. Stop listening to the world. Relationship, verses 19 through 21. Look at the text again. A little while. It's just short. If it's post-resurrection, it's just going to be a couple of days here. But yet a little while, the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. Think of that last phrase. Look at how he's equating the similarity. If Jesus rises from the dead, you rise from the dead. If there's life after death for Jesus, there's life after death for you. If I live, but he didn't say if, he says because. And notice this. Not future, not past. Jesus can only say, I live. There's not past or future because he always lives. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, in that day, you will know that I'm in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and manifest myself to him in a short time. Now, let's do the world and let's do believers. What does this mean for the unbelieving world? You will not see me. Jesus uses that phrase in one way when he speaks to the world. You will not see me. He uses that phrase with a different application and clarity when he speaks to the believers. So if you're with me, it's going to be this short time in regards to the world, and then in this short time in regards to believers. Two different understandings. Let me show you these two understandings. If you take in your Bibles and you turn to John 7, verse 32 through verse 36, he says the same wordings, but he's saying these to unbelievers in John 7. So he says to these unbelieving Pharisees, quote, the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him. The chief priests, the Pharisees, sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little while, a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. This is to a group of unbelievers that are trying to arrest him. You can't come. You're an unbeliever. Then the Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and will not find me, and where I am you cannot come? The the unbelieving world says, we don't get it. John chapter 8, verse 21 same context to the unbelieving world, he says to them again, I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. You say, why is Jesus being so abrasive? They don't believe. They don't believe. 
That's the response you get as an unbeliever. What do you expect him to say to the unbeliever? You'll be with me in paradise? He can't say that because if they don't believe, they don't get to go to paradise. And because they're unbelievers, they will die in their sin. And when they die in their sin, they're going to be judged in hell for all of eternity. These are the words are direct, they're abrasive, and they, they bother us a bit. You say, where's the love of Jesus? Well, what does this phrase mean when he says these same type of words to believers or to disciples? Look in John 13, 33. John 13, 33. Little children. Do you see a difference already? Compassion. Little children. Yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, same words, I'm going to say it to you. Where I'm going, you cannot come. Then if you go down to verse 36, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now. But, but what? You will follow afterward. Jesus is going to the cross. He's going to the grave. Right now, they can't go. They, right now, it's not possible. But once the redemptive event is done, and the resurrection occurs, and Jesus ascends to heaven, then there comes that day that the believer will follow afterward, that anyone that dies in the Lord will be present with the Lord. That's what the Apostle Paul meant, absent from the body, present with the Lord. That is the truth for every believer. For the unbeliever, you can't come. And you stay in a position of being unable to come until you repent and believe the gospel. Now, what, is he, what does Jesus mean when he says that the world does not see, but his disciples see? Now, I don't want to overdo this text because it's a text we will preach in the future. But John 16, I want you to see it because there's more explanation for it there. John 16 and verse 16, and you're going to find the phrase, little while, seven times in one passage. And so here we have it in verse 16 of John 16. A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again a little while, and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what, what is this that he says to us, a little while, and you will not see me, and again a little while, and you will see me, and because I'm going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean a little while? We don't know what he's talking about. Well, Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, Is this what you're asking yourselves, what I meant by saying, A little while, and you will not see me, and again, a little while, you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament. The world will rejoice. So pause right there. There's an event that's going to happen tomorrow. And you're going to weep your eyes out. Why? Because he's going to be slaughtered, dead, and buried. And all the world is going to be happy because they got rid of this troublemaker. See the distinction between the two groups? And Jesus is telling them, this is what's going to happen in just a little while. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. 
Now, you hold that thought in your brain somewhere, because in a moment, I'm going to take you to Isaiah. And and we're going to have this thought of a woman in travail, a woman going to have a baby, and all the sorrow and all the pain, back before epidurals were a common thing, right? And go through all the pain, but then there's this child, and all the weeping's taken away. And everybody's happy, and everybody's smiling, and everybody's rejoicing. That's what he's telling us. For a little bit, you're going to weep. For a little bit, you're going to be sorrowful. But what's going to replace that is eternal. When a woman's given birth, she has sorrow. Her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish. For joy that a man, or human being, man, has been born into the world. So also, you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one, listen, listen, grab the last of this verse, no one will take your joy from you. You understand, I learned this lesson in seminary when I was riding on the back back of a trash truck. And so that's where I learned this verse, and it still resonates in my heart. I'm thinking that nobody cares and all this stuff. And one morning I get on the back of the trash truck, and and there's a valentine taped to the handle that I hold on to. And Terry Bradley had brought brought me a valentine. He taped it to the handle of that trash truck, and it says, Don't let them steal your joy. I swept on the back of the trash truck, and it was that day I realized that joy is not an emotion. Joy is a person. Joy is a person. Joy is personified in Christ. No one's taking my joy because He is my Savior. No one will take your joy from you. In that day, He goes on. But I just want you to catch that personal, relational promise of the second person of the Godhead that he is ours and we are his. We're in this relationship and he is our joy. What a promise. What a joy. Is anybody getting this? Exactly what does union with Christ imply? I mean, what what is the implication of being united to Christ and, 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 and it being indissoluble, you can't separate it. What does that imply? It implies a couple of basic things that we need to be reminded of. Because Jesus lives, you live. It's really life in Christ. No, I know people exist and they breathe and their hearts beat, but nobody lives outside of Christ. You say, can you prove that? Yeah, you're dead in the trespass and sins. They're spiritually dead every day, but those in Christ live and they have life to the abundance. Now, for these disciples, Jesus is alive before their very eyes. They see him objectively, but he's going to be alive after the crucifixion. And for us, he is living right now in heaven, which means that those of you here today who believe in him, you live. And even though you die physically, you will live. And all of our hope is wrapped up in that. That's why, that's why we say things like, oh, when death comes, glorious day. I finally got to go home. It's a day of rejoicing. I know people try to pull it off at funerals and say it's a day of celebration. And it's difficult because somebody's dead. But it's really true if they're Christian. We finally went home. 
in that day. What day? In that day, he says in John 16, 23, he says it again. That day you'll ask nothing of me. In that day you'll ask in my name. I do not say that you will ask the Father on your behalf. What, what, what is he talking about in that day? Well, you won't ask anything. Look at John 14 again. There's three questions that's been asked here in our text in John 14, uh, at least in this chapter. Let me remind you of what they were. Thomas asked a question. Lord, we do not know where you're going how can we know the way? That's John 14, 5. After the resurrection, Thomas isn't asking no more. He ain't asking that question. Then you get to Philip in verse 8. It's not written in a question, but it's a question. Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. If you would do this for us, or we can say, would you show us the Father? Look, after Jesus is resurrected, he's not asking that question again. Or if you go to verse 22, Judas, not Iscariot, says, what has happened that you're going to reveal yourself to us and not to the world? All of these types of questions, as they're trying to work this out in their theology, are going to be no more in that day. And that day, when they see Christ bodily resurrected before their eyes, on that day when they eat fish with him, on that day he walks through that door while it remains locked, on that day when he ascends back into heaven to be seated at the right hand of the throne of God, in that day, all my questions are answered. Everything this man said is true. And I can believe him. Now, you say, well, how do you know they got it? Because I read the book of Acts. And these men so got it, they didn't ask anymore. You know what they did? They preached. And they declared, and they said, thus says the Lord. And I don't care what all you men say, but we must do what God's told us to do. All of their attitude changes. The boldness rises up because they have been absolutely convinced that Christ is the Messiah. What happens on that day when all that transaction is made? Look at these glorious thoughts in this verse. You will know that I am in the Father. All along, he's been trying to say, I and the Father are one. I and the Father are one. You've seen me, you've seen the Father. Have I been with you so long? You don't know? I mean, if I've, you've seen the Father, all these truths. On that day, they know Father and Son are united in oneness. They know that. They also know that they are in Him. Could somebody get that this morning? That the reality for me as a Christian the reality, if you're a believer, you are in Christ. His righteousness covers you. Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Who can go into these pearly gates, if you will? Who? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Who's that? Everyone in Christ. We're in Him. And He says, and I'm in you. Oh, the relationship factor. We love marriage when it's till death do you part. But we see divorce, and we see the ravages of divorce in our world and the effects on the family. But you never see this groom divorce his bride. Never. She's unfaithful, she's a whore, and she runs around with other lovers. But Christ never divorces his bride. I'm with you, and I come to you. This is a covenant that cannot be broken because it's been sealed with my very own blood. It's true for you. You say, man, I sin, I do this and I do that. It's a good thing you got a great groom. But he's patient, he's kind, and he's merciful. And on top of that, he's forgiving. Having... 
says um, a little while and in that day. I want you to know there is some history to this. And that is this in Isaiah chapter 26 and verse 20. In a context of redemption and birth pains, he says, Come, my people, enter your chambers and shut your doors behind you. Hide yourselves for a short time until the fury has passed by. Think about the wrath of God being poured out upon the Son, upon the cross, and all of this wrath and the whole cup being poured out and Him drinking it to the last drop. You hide yourself for just a little while until this fury has passed by and I've satisfied everything necessary for your redemption. Hebrews 10, 37, yet for, for yet a little while and the coming one will come and that without delay what a promise he's going to come and then isaiah 2 verse 11 the haughty looks of man shall be brought low the lofty pride of men shall be humbled and the lord alone will be exalted on that day he's exalted in his resurrection and he'll be exalted in his second coming lastly in matthew 24 Verse 36, but concerning that day, that hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, the Father only, but it is a fixed day, and that day is coming. We find our hope and our encouragement and our strength in that. Now, in verse 21, having plus keeping, having plus keeping equals loving. Look at verse 21 one more time. Remember, this is still Jesus talking. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. In the context here of this verse, to have means to grasp with the mind. I grasp and comprehend the commands of Jesus the teachings of Jesus, the Word of Christ. I have comprehension in my mind. If you're the person who claims that you have comprehension of these types of things from the Word of God, the proof of that is in your desire to keep them. There's an inclination. There's a default. There's a motive. There's a desire. I long to be obedient unto Him of whom my heart loves. I, I have this inclination. I didn't have it before. Before I just lived to myself, but now there's something within me that wants to me to be obedient unto him. Those who are like that, he says, are the ones who love me. And I mentioned Cody had this conversation with someone, and it's a conversation that happens all the time. It's like you ask anybody on the street, you don't believe me, just try it today. Go out and say, hey, do you love Jesus? Yeah, I love Jesus. Everybody loves Jesus. They don't go to church. They don't go to Sunday school. They don't read the Bible. They don't memorize the Bible. They don't evangelize. They don't go on missions. They don't worship. They don't sing. They don't cherish Christ in their hearts, but they love Jesus. No, you don't. You're a liar. Unless you have a desire to keep the things of God, then you don't love Him. You say, well, that's just one verse. Yes, it's one true verse. Let me give you some more true verses. John 14, 15, if you love me, you keep my commandments. John 14, 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. 
John 14, 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. John 15, 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. 1 John 5, 3, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and they are not burdensome. 2 John 1, 6, and this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. It's the reality of believers. Because... Look, if Christ dwells in you, the Father dwells in you, the Spirit of God takes up residence in you, of course you're going to have an inclination to obedience. What else do you think the Spirit of God's going to lead you to? What type of Christianity, suppose it has the Spirit of God in them and leads them to worldliness? That's a different spirit. The Spirit of God is the Spirit of truth. He leads us unto truth. And so if we have this Spirit of God, there's always an inclination. It's like you go through the week and you're like, all of a sudden you have a desire to read the Bible. You have a desire to pray. You think about church. You think about somebody's soul. Why do you do that? Because the Spirit of God causes that within you. Three promises in verse 21, at least three. The one who is loving Jesus will be loved by the Father. Second promise, the one loving Jesus will be loved by Jesus. Now here's a theological claim from this verse. Because knowing what 1 John says, that his love is the first cause, and then we follow after he loves, I want to say it this way. God's loving of us precedes our loving of Him, and His love follows after we believe. By preceding our love, it creates in us the eager desire to keep Christ's precepts. Then by following our love, it rewards us for keeping them. God's love was shed abroad in my heart, and I believe. And when I believe, His love came right along behind that, and it follows me and rewards me for believing. Psalm 19, verse 11. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. The love of God rewards us for obedience. He's just that generous. When we live in obedience to Him, He just showers blessings upon us. He's a good Father, and He really does love you. He knows your obedience. He knows your walk, and He rewards us in accordance with that. I don't know, it's just like, I it's like one level of good news on top of another level, on top of another level, I don't even have English words to make it work. On top of all that, he says, and I will just keep manifesting myself to you. Like, when I was eight years old, I understood this so much about Jesus, then 10, then 12, and 16, and 20, and so on and so forth. It's like, throughout my whole Christian life, I just keep seeing more and more and more and more of Christ. He's bigger and bigger and deeper and more marvelous and more beautiful and more precious. Why? Because he promised he would do that. I'll manifest myself to you today and tomorrow and the next day and the next day. You can pursue Christ for all of eternity and there's still more to be manifested. And he will only do that for the believer. Not for the world. They won't understand. They won't have it revealed to them. Be cautious in that statement. Sometimes we say things without thinking, but sometimes we talk about Christianese stuff and we say, hey, I already know all that stuff. 
You, you have no idea what you're saying. You don't know all that stuff. I didn't know all that stuff. There's so much to Christ. The more I know, it's like the more I learn, I'm like, I didn't know anything. There's so much more of him. You have not figured him out. You got these goofy kids. We got grown men today that play video games. It makes no sense to me whatsoever. But they, they, they play stupid video games. And you know what they do when they get to the end of the video game and they get to all the levels? They just throw it away. They just go get another one because they figured it all out. You'll never get to the bottom of Christ and throw him away. There's always more to him. You can't exhaust him. And he keeps manifesting himself unto us. Oh, lastly, let us move on. Verses 22, our response, 22 through 24. Judas, not Iscariot. Lord, what's happened? You'd manifest yourself to us and not to the world. Well, Jesus answers and. In my footnotes, it says, uh, don't change the subject, Buckwheat. He says, if you love me, you'll keep my word, right? You remember he said that in 21, then you get the question, and Jesus goes right back to what he was saying. Just keep my word, and that's it. If you'll just do that, my Father will love you, and will come to you, and we will come to him, and make our home with him. Here's all you need to know. Follow the Lord Jesus in obedience, and the promise is he will take up residence within your life. Whoever does not love me, verse, I mean, verse 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My Father will love him. We will come and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me, and the reality is they don't keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. What has happened What has come about? What's come to be that you'd reveal yourself to us and not to the world? It appears to me that Judas, not Iscariot, wants to know what would cause Jesus to manifest himself to disciples and not the world. The disciples seem throughout the Gospels to hold this thought that the kingdom is going to come on the world by force, Rome's going to be overthrown, and Jesus is going to set up an earthly kingdom in which they're going to sit on his right hand and left hand. They can't envision a kingdom being established through being slaughtered on a tree and dying. And so they, they, they can't seem to get that in their minds. And I think Judas still has the same problem. He can't figure out how Jesus is going to set up this kingdom and the world's not going to know it. I mean, if you set up your kingdom, Rome's going to know that you've claimed to be king. And so how are you going to do this? It's like asking, Jesus, show yourself. Show your great power to the world. It may not be too late. Make an impression. Get into the limelight. Win applause. Overthrow the opposition. Go Turn, turn to John chapter 7, just very, very briefly. John chapter 7. This same question has been asked by Jesus' brothers. In John chapter 7, verse 3, his brothers, Jesus' brothers, this is what they say. Leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. No one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. We need a good enough show to shake the world. And Jesus is like, no, I'm going to a cross, and I'm revealing myself to those who believe me. Don't change the subject. Jesus has taught, we could go through a lot of things, obviously, but 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. These are the great commandments upon all the law and the prophets hang upon them. Do those, and it'll be evidence that you love me. Those who keep his word will be loved by the Father. They will also be loved by Christ himself. Now, Jesus' implied answer, it's not a direct answer, but the implied answer is, Jesus is at the end of his divine mission, and the final application will be the indwelling of the triune God. The Father and I will come to dwell in him. Look at verse 23 again. You see in your text the word home. Make our home with him. This is the same word that is used in chapter 14, verse 2. In my Father's house are many rooms. By the way, there's a big debate back in the day. King James Version says mansions. Everybody lost their minds when these translations didn't use mansions. But not even King James uses mansions in verse 2 and also in verse 23. Same Greek word. So just to be fair, they don't do it in both cases either. This idea of taking up residence, living within us, is the thought. So let me remind you. This is what, what has happened. This is what's happened. Jesus was sent into the world born of a virgin. He lived a perfect life. And now he will substitute himself in the place of sinners by being nailed to a tree and becoming a curse for them. He will absorb the penalty that they deserve, and on the third day, his sacrifice will be vindicated because he will be raised from the dead. He will manifest himself to his disciples, then he will ascend up into glory, and he will always reside in each individual believer in the person of the Holy Spirit. Take up residence, live. Whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Jesus leaves to prepare a room, to prepare a place for us. This is so, it's, it's more than my mind can take, but Jesus departs and he's preparing a room in the future for me, but until that room is completed, he's just going to live in me until he takes me to my new room. That's the truth of my text. I have a place being prepared, but until that place is prepared, I'm not alone. The Godhead is taking up residence within me until he gets me home. I, I I hear a lot of talk. I just assume you're getting caught in talk at work and life and Walmart, at the cashier, whatever. You talk all of these things, and I hear nothing but fear and anxiety and the Democrats and the Republicans, and is Trump going to run for office or not? I don't care if he ever runs for office. That's not the issue. Stay on track. Everything you need. Everything you need for this life and the life to come is found in Christ, and he's taken up residence within you. Well, the government, well, this. Look, have you ever read the Old Testament? You don't understand that kings were corrupt, and nations fell, and people were killed, and plagues came, and people died all over the country, and thousands upon thousands were slaughtered, and the ground opened up and swallowed all these people, and all these horrific things happened, and all of Nineveh, although it was spared in Jonah, and if you read a few minor prophets later, there's dead bodies laying everywhere, bodies upon top of bodies. You understand, there's always been corruption, there's always been political upheaval, there's always been corrupt leadership on top. This is not our home! This is what he's telling you. I'm residing in you, and I will get you home, and this ain't it. 
Somehow, we got so many Christians in depression and sadness and walking around like, woe is me. How can you claim woe is me when the third person of the Godhead dwells in you and you're going to glory? We ought to be able to offer that to a world that has nothing. All the world can do is get drunk or get high or go have illicit fornication sex somewhere and somehow have some kind of temporary gratification. We have eternal gratification. We ought to have something in here of joy and hope that we can display to somebody. The church would grab a hold of that. Not loving Jesus is made evident in a person who will not keep his words. D.A. Carson said, Mere duty will not generate obedience to Christ. Only love for Him can do that. Only love. And he closes out this section. He says, by the way, my word and God's word are the same. Not a different word. Well, if you're a person who is loving Jesus, then you're a person who's keeping His commandments. That's your heart's desire. You have an ongoing relationship with Jesus. You're loved by Jesus and by the Father. And you have the overwhelming privilege of the Holy Spirit taking up residence in you. And you will never be alone. And I conclude this sermon with this. On the other hand, if you refuse to obey Jesus, it is because you do not love Him. Since you do not love Him, He does not reside in you and you are left behind. And you are blind, and you are deaf, and you are dead. And Jesus has commanded all men everywhere to repent and to believe upon Him. And until you do, you remain dead until you're willing to submit to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. I encourage you, come to Christ. Be baptized by immersion and profess Him as Lord. And Christian, I know you can hear my heart, not that my heart really matters, it's as corrupt as anybody else's, but at least hear my heart for you. I don't want you to have to live in depression and anxiety. I want you to be sad and thinking the world's going to end. It is going to end. And you are going to die. We're not getting out of this thing alive, but we're getting out of it with Jesus. And we're going to go home, and it all makes sense then. Brother Jeff, will you come lead us in song?